Now, here it is. If you were to look at the Old Testament, you were to take the document of Judaism from which then all Judaism is based. Like, if there was like a constitutional document, what would you call it? What would it be? What part of the Old Testament would you call the sort of foundational law of Israel? The, the, Torah. the Torah. The Torah. Yeah, the Torah. The Torah is, in essence, five distinct books. But by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this fact that, first of all, when, I, when a Hebrew speaker mentions the first book of the Bible, for instance, they don't call it Genesis. Mm. As a matter of fact, they might find it a little offensive because it's a Greek word. Um, they use the word Barashit. And the reason is the first word is Barashit. Kind of like if you ever looked at those hymnals where it always seems like they give you the first line or a title. Well, it's interesting because the next four books, that would be then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all start with the word the. And the means and. In other words, in the eyes of a, of a traditional Hebrew, they're going to look and say that's one big book, and for a good reason. And none of the books go, okay, when we can say, well, okay, this one takes us to Joseph getting him into Egypt, second book takes him out of Egypt, but then gets into sort of where they can make it to Sinai, and then from Sinai, ultimately, it's the, uh, the launching of the tabernacle, and then from the tabernacle, it's the sort of the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, and then finally, sort of Moses' final song, he sings and he dies like a good musical. But it's but in all of that, think about it. It's like the first one sort of focuses on the fact that we see the original sin. The second one, we see God save Israel by pulling them out of Egypt. And then we see that how God is starting to set them apart in the book of Leviticus. And then from that, God shows how sovereign he is by a whole generation dying in the wilderness and God raising up the second generation, which means he's not just sovereign, he's smart. And then in the last book, the book, by the way, that will mention the word love, more than all of the first four books combined, he prepares them for service as they prepare to enter into the promised land. Does that make sense? Now, people like to use the issue of Jordan or crossing the Jordan as the idea of going to heaven. But there are some problems with that, at least as far as I'm concerned. Well, one of them is, like always, please just don't believe me. Don't just assume it's true. But just because I say so, search the scriptures. Because there's battles to be fought. And I kind of get the idea that going into heaven isn't going to be that I have to fight to get property. But what God did promise is they were going to leave a land of bondage to a place of great fruitfulness. Now, that actually applies more to now. And I'd like you to consider the fact of that. Because ultimately, you know, if you've read the book, that what happens is they get comfortable and then we have the time of judges. I'd hate that to be heaven. But what if what God planned for every Christian was not to just say yes to him, but God to burn off the old man, that's the whole idea of the book of Numbers, and raise up the new guy so that he could be raised up for service because it says now that you've been set free, don't lose your, use your freedom as an opportunity for vice, but rather through love serve one another so that you could be tremendously fruitful. What you realize is most of the people who may have responded to getting out of Egypt never really make it into the promised land. They never actually discover what God's call is on their life because they're just happy to go to heaven. Well, understand, interesting, because the book of Romans breaks up into five sections, too. The same order, by the way. Chapters 1 and 2, they all start with the letter S. Chapters 1 and 2, it's sin. God focuses on the issue of sin. Chapters 3 through 5, salvation. And do you see those little spots right there? That'll kind of help you. So, chapters 1 and 2, sin. Oh, hold on. You're going to run again. Pens. Pens are coming or something. If, you know what, and if you grab my, where is my little green bag? Yeah, can I have that please? Because I have a couple of pens in there. Thank you. Oh, well here. Yeah, rubbish pens. You know, I'm a lefty and for whatever reason, like, pens do not work very well for me. So, um, 
All right. So I have a pen and a like multi MacGyver pen. Would anyone like one of these? Here you take that one, bro. Just get it back to me. Yeah. All right. Okay. And this one's fun because you get to actually measure things. <laughs> okay. Yeah, come on now. Chapters one and two is sin. Chapters three through five, salvation. Do you see that next part? Right? And then chapters uh, six through eight, usually everyone's favorite, the area of sanctification, which just, by the way, means being set apart. Then, unless you're a Calvinist, because if you're a Calvinist, nine through 11 seem to be your favorite, and that is sovereignty and smart. God is sovereign and smart. And then finally, chapters 12 through 16, service. They have to be in that order. God is, it's often called the constitution of Christianity. Consider they use the same order in the Torah. Interestingly enough, maybe you're aware of the fact that Psalms is broken up into five books as well. Anyways, with that in mind, consider the fact that it starts with the area of sin. You have to realize the aspect of sin before you're going to be seeking salvation. We'll address the issue of salvation. And now that you're saved, and notice, by the way, you're not halfway into the book. For most people in sort of the Western world, so we're kind of like by the package, like salvation's it. Well, you're saved. What else is there? I remember when I was first saved, I remember asking a pastor, why doesn't he kill us? I mean, of course, you can imagine if guys like, what? What? Right? And I'm like, no, really. I mean, if God did this so that we could go to heaven, and I'm going to heaven now, why didn't you just kill me? Right? I mean, what's left of life? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, that does not help. Mm. <laughs> he's like, then there's that. God's like, now I want to set you apart. But when I set you apart, you're going to have to realize I am in control and I am smarter than you are. So I'm going to have things happen in a way that you don't necessarily expect, but it's going to be for the results you want. And then ultimately will be the aspect of service in 12 through 16. Now, Let's take a look at it. But now, first of all, when I start asking, one of the things I want to ask is, well, it's, okay, we're now in the epistles. The epistles mean letters. Epi means upon. Apo means out of. Stelos means to send. So to send out is an apostelos, and that's where we get the word apostle. Someone sent out. To send upon is an epistelos, or an epistle, and that's a letter. He sent it upon someone. Now, of those letters that we're going to read, from this point now to the end of the book, they're all letters. Even the book of Revelation, singular, note that, is actually, it's actually seven letters, if we're going to be honest. They are epistles. Of those epistles, 13 of them are written by Paul. They're clearly denoted as written by Paul. One of them, they want to argue over the book of Hebrews, because it always starts with who wrote it. Read the first word of Hebrews. And actually it says, God in former times and in various ways spoke with prophets, but now in these last days is spoken by, the, by his son or through his son whom he appointed heir of all things. You get the idea. It's like God's like, you need to know I wrote this book. Now, <clears throat> regardless of who was holding the quote, but of the 13 letters that Paul writes, two of them are to churches he has actually not planted. Romans and Colossians. All the other ones were ones he personally planted. This is one of those letters. He is not writing, though he has a tremendous amount of people that he knows firsthand. We'll see that at the end of the book. He clearly, though, has not planted this work. 
So now I have to ask, well, when did he write it and where did he write it? Because it's clear who he wrote it to. It's clear who wrote it. It's in the first couple verses. So usually I go to the end of the book, and by the end of the book you get some information. This is what I get in chapters 15 and 16. In chapter 15, Paul actually says that he was planning on going to Jerusalem, and he had collected the, uh, the offering from the areas of Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, and that tells me something, because the book of Acts is my decoder ring. That tells me we are now, okay, so Paul is on there, he's on his way to, uh, to Jerusalem. That's where he's going to get beat up and arrested, and that whole drama starts. So that puts us now in 17, 18, and 19. Okay, so our, and so I'm starting to look at that, and then I go, okay, now that I look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 4 mentions a girl named Phoebe. And it's like, hey, so we know a little bit about that. So, okay, so we've got to look at Phoebe. And then it tells us about two other people in verses, I believe it's 12 through 16 of the same chapter. And what you'll find out is one person is actually from Centrea. And that's Phoebe. Centrea, by the way, is the eastern coast or the port of Corinth. Okay, that's kind of a good note. It's like Phoebe says hi. So probably Phoebe must be there. Okay. But then also he tells us about a couple other people. He tells us about a guy named Gaius. And then he tells us about a third guy. Now, for what it's worth in all of this, uh, Gaius is somebody that Paul, we do read, by the way, may have a, he says, oh, when he writes to the Corinthians, he's like, well, he is actually somebody I, I actually baptized. And I love the way that Paul says, oh, I don't remember everyone I baptized, but I do remember that guy. I don't know whether he, like, he pulled the people down when he was being baptized, or I don't know, but, but he was remembered. For whatever it's worth, he was in Corinth. The last guy says he was actually left in Corinth, according to the book of Acts. So it's easy to assume, then, that it was probably written in Corinth, which means he would have just collected the amount that was, again, heading to Judea. That's kind of the idea. And he was going to go and bring it. And that's where he writes this letter. Now, as he writes this letter, that puts us now in the winter of about 57, 58 A.D., Roughly give you an idea. Which means he is roughly now three years, and it fits right into all of that, about that time of right before getting arrested and that whole craziness. So, so putting all of that into perspective, Paul is writing from, from Corinth. He hears about this church that clearly has accepted Christ, and it's in Rome, and he writes a legal document like the Romans, which was, Rome was the legal capital of the whole world at the time. So, he writes it very orderly, and in a sort of point after point. Does that make sense? So now what we want to do is we want to cover each of these sections and get our primary basic points from each. Is that fair? Yeah. Now again, we're only doing overview, so it isn't like I can develop this. If I develop it and still try to keep it in an hour, your brains will explode. <laughs> if I develop it and don't keep it in an hour, we'll be here until tomorrow morning. So I want to at least get you, and the idea is like I'm walking you through a museum, showing you pictures, but quickly, so that you can go back and look at any time you want, because they're in your own Bible. Is that fair? Yeah. Chapter 1. It tells us this, and this is kind of where we want to start it. In verse, and of course, Paul in essence goes, Hi, hello, you know, hey, I really wanted to come and see you guys. I haven't been able to yet, but I plan on seeing you. And he'll do that again in chapter 16. But he says this in verse 16. And look at it with me, Romans 1, 16. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Does that make sense? 
because it's right there in front of you. Now, Paul will develop that. Now, that is going to, everything from the rest of the book is going to hinge on this. It's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to shrivel away from it because it is the, notice not a, but definite article, the power of God for salvation. Whether it be, and he also then denotes two groups of people. Did you notice that? The Jewish people and the Gentiles. For our sake, let me throw it out this for your consideration because it will apply to the rest of the book as well. Might I say that though the Gentiles were spiritual people, they weren't religious. What I mean by that, it was kind of a free-for-all and you kind of did whatever you wanted. But the Jews were very much religious. They were raised with a very set and clear standard. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I say that is, is that he, what if we compared it in our own lives so there's basically two groups of people. There's the religious people and the, we might say irreligious people. And you're probably aware, a lot of people who aren't religious are still very spiritual, which, by the way, is very dangerous. That's kind of like there's some that are pharmacists and some just do drugs. But clearly the second's not so good. Are you with me on that? But he says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness, by the way, is going to be one of the fundamental terms in this particular book. For what it's worth, I believe it's mentioned 38 times in this book. And, uh, and he quotes then Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4. Interesting, the statement in Habakkuk 2.4 is that the just shall live by faith. Three very clear things. The just shall live by faith. You following me? Interesting, it is reiterated three times in the New Testament. It is reiterated here first, for what it's worth, Galatians chapter 3, second, and then in Hebrews 10, the third time. Why is that important? Because what will happen is Romans develops and defines the just. If, Galatians will define shall live. Hebrews 10 shall define by faith. Because right after Hebrews 10 comes Hebrews 11, and that's the hall of faith. Now, does that make sense? Now, this is the key point. From faith to faith. Now, it's important to recognize that some people take this and poorly grab a hold of a concept and mis- mis- and I and I don't do this normally but this is an, a very improper reading of it where they're like you have faith and you're going deeper in that faith but that is not from one kind of faith to another there would be faith to greater faith but it isn't a from faith does that make sense it is in the ablative tense but is in the Greek by the way you're probably aware there are well there are verb nouns case, verbs and nouns there are cases and tenses and there is I mean it is so definitive but one of them is the ablative tense, and what that means is it denotes separation. For instance, it says, there was a man sent from God, his name was John. That is in the ablative tense. In other words, John clearly wasn't God, he was sent from God. And it's the ablative tense. This is also in the ablative tense. In other words, you don't go from faith deeper into that faith, you go from one kind of faith to a different kind of faith. Or better yet, from faith in one thing to faith in another. And he goes, the gospel tells you that you need to, to exchange the article of your faith from your works to the grace of God. Now, with that then, he starts developing what it means in sin. And basically what you're going to find is it's righteousness or wrath. The righteousness comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. The wrath, which is then the rest of chapter 1, says this, the wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their own ungodliness. 
It isn't that they don't know the truth. As a matter of fact, that's developed next. But it says, rather, the word is the opposite of the word revelation, apocalypso. Apocalypsis means to unveil, and this means to veil. In other words, they are holding it down and not looking. What it says is that what God has made, even what he makes clearly testifies of who he is, so that man is without excuse. You go, well, I don't believe that there's a God. Oh, he's made enough stuff to testify around you. But what it tells us, and look at this with me as you're in your Bibles, right? It tells us the wrath of God is being revealed. I want to show you what the wrath of God looks like and what sin looks like according to God in this. Notice, by the way, in verse 21 of, of verse 1. Although they knew God, they did not glorify God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Preferring to be, professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of things that are corruptible man. Did you get that? They exchanged. God revealed himself and they went, nope, I will swap it out for something that I can see. So what's, what's God's wrath? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Can you say, gave them up? Gave them up. You guys sound like zombies, man. Come on up. Give me a gave them up. Gave them up. Thank you. So he gave them up, and it tells us then, to the lust of their own hearts. Now, verse 25, how did the man, what did man do? He exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Notice again the exchange. What's God's response? Look at verse 26. Therefore God gave them up. Could you say gave them up? Okay, now, isn't this interesting? This is the wrath of God. And he gave them up this time to vile passions and where they would behave. And again, read it on your own. You'll see where it goes. And then it says in verse 28, and even though they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, notice it says, God gave them over. Could you say, gave them over? Gave them over. This is the wrath of God. Not God smacking you around. Do you know what that's called? The chastisement of God. Do you know who he does that to? His kids. You know what the wrath of God is? Giving you up literally, imagine this. Imagine that Noreen wants to run out into the street. She's four at this moment. And we're trying to go, no, no, no. And so what happens is, we, you know, it's like the three of us at this point, Tunde, you know, and Shamar and myself, we form a Kung Fu barricade shield, and we just block you. But you keep pushing, and you keep pushing, and you keep pushing, so we back up closer to the curve. We give you more space. We give you up. We give that space up. Now you're closer with the idea that maybe one of those guys on a Harley is going to drive by, and it'll freak you out. And so we, oh, no, 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 no. You keep pushing, and you keep pushing, so God gives you more space. But the ultimate wrath of God is God letting you go where you want to go. Isn't that crazy? That's the wrath of God. Mm. Now, that's chapter 1. Chapter 2, and again, this is all under the confines of sin. Chapter 2, he's like, well, let me talk to you Jewish people now. Let's talk to the religious people. You guys think you are actually out of this because you're religious? Don't you realize you have the law and you transgress against it? You teach the law, but you break it? Now, what, he gets, what you get out of that in the simplest sense is by the time we're done with chapter 2, is it doesn't matter whether you're religious or unreligious, we are all guilty. And what he tells us is that the Jewish person or the religious person has their law, but the un unreligious person has their conscience. And that's their law. And it doesn't matter who you are, You've broken your law. So you all stand as lawbreakers before God. 
chapters 1 and 2, the simplest oversight, the simplest conclusion to the issue of sin is everybody does it. How's that? Chapters 3 through 5, now we have salvation. Section 2. So, section 1, what is it? What's the letter S? What is it? Section 1 is? Chapters 1 and 2. Oh, sorry, sin. That's right. Sorry, sin. (laughs) Chapters 1 and 2 is? Chapters 3 through 5 is? Salvation. Now, look at chapter 3 with me for just a moment. Chapter 3, look at verse 9. Are we better than they? No, listen. Everybody sins. Doesn't matter who you are. You all sin. And he quotes from Psalm 14, and then Psalm 5, uh, and then Psalm 53, and then Ecclesiastes 7, and then it's just it just goes on and on. And he just quotes, 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 quotes. And I love the fact that he does this, Psalm 8, and then Psalm 140. And the idea of it in all of this is he's saying, everybody does it. And he goes, you need to recognize, and this is fundamental, there is a law of biblical precedent. And what that means is, this is not a new idea. This has already been established in the Old Testament. Is that fair? So he goes, look it. The Old Testament completely agrees with this. Everybody's a sinner. Doesn't matter where you start. Everybody's a sinner. But then you get to the crux of it in verses 23 and 24. And this is where it pivots. In verse 23, notice it says, For, because, oh, will the word, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How many people, according to this verse, or these two verses, have sinned? How many of these people then have fall short of the glory of God? How many of them can be justified freely by His grace? They all can be. Because it's all the same sentence. There's some that's the, there's a term that's used called limited atonement, and I don't want to go straight after the throat of that, but it's important to recognize these two verses tell us that as many people as have sinned could be justified freely. It's in the same sentence. And the point is this. If the need is universal, then so must the cure be. Does that make sense? The whole point of salvation fundamentally here is if everybody does it, then everybody then it's only one answer need be given. And that is the answer of grace through faith. God offers grace. We accept it by faith. It's that simple. So, who can boast over that then? Nobody. You're religious, you still need God's grace. You're unreligious, you still need God's grace. Chapter 3. Chapter 4. Well, let's talk about the law of biblical precedent to that. And he uses two examples. He uses Abraham, and he uses David. He says in Abraham's case, he uses the issue of faith. And he says, let me ask you, when God declared Abraham righteous, was he circumcised or wasn't he? The answer is he wasn't. It was chapter 15 that God gave him the promise. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Chapter 17, he got the circumcision. So in other words, God declared him righteous before circumcision, and therefore, circumcision must not be necessary to be righteous. At least as far as Abraham is concerned. But it happens by faith. And then we say, and David understood the blessedness of this. And David, and now he quotes from Psalm 52, it's all about forgiveness. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquity the Lord will never count against him. 
He goes, if you were to call to the stand as precedent, these two men, what they tell you is, Abraham would say, it's about faith. And David would say, it's about forgiveness. And he goes, I think that's pretty simple and clear. And he goes, that's of course, because what seems obvious is there are people in Rome that are very proud of their Jewish heritage. And he goes, and by the time we're going to get done, he's going to be like, you guys need to start getting along with your Gentile believing friends. Or you should need to, need to make them friends. So the promise was always through faith. It's never been through works. It's always been through faith. Chapter 5 then, the whole point of it is, is that because of that, now we see what grace looks like in it. Because we have access by faith through the grace in which we now stand. That same grace, by the way, makes us alive. The same way that we were given the DNA of a fallen man through Adam, now we have a second Adam and we are given the spiritual DNA through Jesus. So, chapters 1 and 2 is about what? Sin. Sin. Chapters 3 through 5? Salvation. So, chapters 1 and 2, sin, everybody does it. Chapters 3 through 5, everybody's offered it, but it is by God's grace through faith. And what does God offer by grace? Well, according to David, he offers forgiveness. How's that? God offers forgiveness by grace. And like Abraham, we receive it by faith. By the way, faith is not a fancy term. Pistujo. Okay, it sounds a little fancy. But it just means trust. It's interesting what people make of it. You ever hear people say, faith moves the hand of God? I think that's kind of strange to me. Because there's one thing I see God responding to, and that's in wrath. They refuse him, and he, ref- and he responds by giving them more space to see how horrible it is. But... I would say that if that's the case, he's still the Lord of your life. I think faith, God's hands are already there and he wants to open them up, but what faith does is puts our hands under his to receive what he offers us. At least that's the way I look at it. It isn't like, going, oh God, this is my whole idea. Now move your hands over here. God's, I mean, you know, God's like, I have this for you, Tunde. I have this for you, Shamar. I have this for you, Eddie. And he's like, now, do you trust me? Then put your hands under mine and let me give it to you. Well, there's the idea. So, what's that? Well, then I guess he gives you the strength to carry it. You know? I remember hearing a story about a, a kid and his dad back in the, like, 40s. The guy that originally told the story was probably born in, like, 1800. And he was one of those guys that kind of walked out and, you know, he looked like the Hall of Presidents from Disneyland. But, uh, but he kind of, I think, or he was a Rolling Stone. But, uh, McKellen, he told this story about how he and his dad would used to go to this particular, uh, like we see them here, boiled sweet shops, right? Those good old-fashioned ones where everything's in a jar. Mm-hmm. And they were actually saying that it, by then it was like, I think it was two pence for a handful. So the kid was like so stoked. He's like, Dad, how much do you have? He's like, I'll tell you what. I'll give you two pence for this. And before he reached his hand, and he goes, no, let me ask you something. I think his son was like five. He's like, who has hands in this room? And you're like, well, everybody has hands in this room. And he goes, and well, what does it say? And it says two pence a handful. And he goes, and he goes, hold up your hand. And he holds up his hand to his dad. And he goes, so which hand do you want to go in that jar? And he's like, oh, dad, you go in the jar. <laughs> and it's like there's so many times we think if we could get our hand in the jar, we're going to get the best of it. Mm-hmm. And we have your father. Watch what he does. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So one and two, it is. Yeah. And it's everybody does it. 
three through five, salvation. salvation. And again, the idea is every, because it's a universal need, it's a universal solution. And it is God's part is grace. And what does he offer by grace? Forgiveness. forgiveness. And what do we receive by faith? We receive that forgiveness. Okay. Chapter 6 to 8. Now you're saved. Now God begins the work of sanctification. And there is a word called peripathetic. You probably use it a lot too, right? Yeah. yeah. Peripathetic is a traditional Pharisaic way of doing things. And what it means is I kind of know what you're thinking. So I'll ask your question for you. Happens a lot in politics. They're like, I know what you're going to say. Right? So he plays this out. By the way, this chapter, well, chapter 6, by the way, through about 7.13, it really does shoot down so much of the lame Christianity that's out there today that I would dare say may not even be Christianity at all. And it happens with a series of questions. Look at 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? And tell me if you can hear a theme in these. Shall we sin or shall we continue to sin that grace should abound? Look at verse 15. Well, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Look at chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? What's the, what's the theme? Sin. Do you get that? Now, here's what they're asking. The first one, shall we continue to sin because God's just going he's gonna, to, he's pouring forth all this grace and we'll just get more grace. Do you know, one of the things that really bothers me when people say, well, it's better to just do it and ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. Has anyone ever heard that thing? I get it as a kid, but not with God. It isn't good in any relationship as far as I'm concerned. Imagine Bruno's like, I'm not really sure if this is going to hurt Agnes. It's better to just do it than ask and ask for forgiveness later than it would be to actually ask her if she's okay with it. I don't think that would really be sensitive of him. And actually, I wouldn't think that that would be Bruno at all. Not the Bruno I know. Well, why would we do that with God? Now, this is the basic point of it. And again, 6 through 8, do you remember what the third one is? Sanctification. God's setting you apart. How does he set you apart? Well, the first thing is you need to deal with sin. Oh, that's just rough already, isn't it? And here's the idea. Should we just continue living the life we did before we were saved? He said, here's his answer to that. Don't you realize you died? That guy died. And don't you realize God raised up a new person? Why do you want to live like the old dead guy? Buried with him in baptism, raised in newness of life. That's all in that. Does that make sense? So he's like, why would you continue living like the old guy? Because that old guy's dead. So reckon him dead. In other words, consider him dead. Because, well, because he is. Second question. Well, then should we just do a sin? Should we just go? In other words, the idea is, should we be cavalier about it? Because after all, we're just going to be forgiven anyways, right? Because we're not under the law, we're under grace. You know what he says? He says, don't you know that what you submit to, you're going to be a slave to? Now, he's talking to Christians. He says, don't you realize you as a Christian can still be in bondage? You can still be an addict. You can still submit to porn. You can still submit to drinking. You can still submit to, to, to gambling or whatever the thing is that's going to own you. He goes, you should realize if you're, going to, you're handing yourself over to a slave master, and then you're going to wonder why God's unfair to you. Don't you see how silly that is? He goes, you should live the new life. That's the first answer. And the second is, you should live the free life. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Third question, so what's the problem? Was law the problem? He goes, no, actually, the law's not weak. I'm weak. The law's not the problem. I'm the problem. The law's perfect. 
I just can't do it. And that's why I need grace. Chapter 6 through 8, the whole focus is how to leave walking in sin to transfer over to walking in the Spirit. That's why we love chapter 8 the most, usually, unless we have a doctrinal bend. Because it's full of promises. It's pregnant with all these beautiful promises. We're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. All those things we love to embrace, but they wrap around the concept that we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. He goes, that whole walking like the dead guy, that's the body of flesh. As a matter of fact, this is how Paul says it. And again, I remind you, if he's writing this in 57, 58 AD, for those of you who may have been around last night, how old is Paul roughly at 57, 58 AD? 57, 58. That's a pretty simple, that's about as simple a math as you can get. Paul, let's say, got saved in 34. So who can tell me how many years he's been a Christian? Yeah. So if it's 57, 58, it's 58, and it was 34, that's 24 years. So let me ask you, who at this table has been a Christian for 24 years? I'm like, I don't even think you're going to I'll tell you, there's one guy I know at this table that's been a Christian for 24 years. <laughs> that's me. Uh, most of all, you know, I can add you up and you still don't look like you're 24. Imagine being 24 years old in Christ and saying, why do I still do what I don't want to do? Hey, inside there is a desire to do the right thing and I don't do it. Inside, I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I still do it. 24-year-old Christian, he's been in ministry almost all of that time, except for this jint where they had to get rid of him because he was troubling. And yet in all of that, he's still going, why am I still dealing with this? And then he says this, oh, wretched man that I am. Could you imagine getting to that point? To be honest, if you walk with Christ for a few years and you're still dealing with something, chances are you've said that in one way or another to yourself. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Quick side note. I think we're pretty on time still. We're halfway there, believe it or not. It's been a half hour and we're, we're right on time. Body of death was a way of Roman capital punishment. And it's one of their favorites. See, the Romans were really good at inventing or stealing and perfecting the nastiest ways of killing people as a deterrent. They were really good at preempting other crimes by making someone die so horribly you thought, hmm, I should probably not do that because this might happen to me. And this was one of them. So Lois does something horrible. She (laughs) kicks a nun to death. (laughs) She's having a bad day. And it's just, just, yeah. And the nun is holding a puppy. Yeah, and of course when the nun falls, the puppy dies too. And the puppy's name was Marley, just to make it worse, right? All right. Yes. And they want to make sure that any nun-kicking, puppy-killing girls never do the same. And here's one of the ways they do it. Traditionally, this was done for a troublemaker in prison. They've already been put in prison. By the way, you're probably aware, Romans didn't have one of these life sentences. Well, they gave everyone almost a life sentence. Basically, if you were there for the day, they brought you out and humiliated you. They beat you in front of everyone, threw stuff at you, everyone pointed and laughed, and they sent you home. If you lasted more than a day and a half or two days in prison, it was because they were just waiting for the right time to kill you. So you, everybody basically had a life sentence. It wasn't like you were going to actually you know, have a life sentence, and it was like six years you're going to do, you know, 
I mean, I remember the first time I, when I first moved here, and they're like, that guy got a life sentence, you know, and it's like six years, and I'm thinking, is he a fruit fly? How is that six? <laughs> is he 95 years old? How is that a life sentence, right? You know, it's crazy how that, well, anyways, so what happens? They just brought you on and killed you. So let's say you were in there waiting for that to happen, and you were trying to rally up people. So Lois is now in prison, and she's rallying up the other girls, and we're like, we hate nuns, we hate nuns. And she's showing pictures of Shanae O'Connor from the SNL skit, where she's tearing a picture of the Pope and all that. And, uh, and all of this. So this is what they'll do with such a person, is they take an already dead body, uh, someone usually, of course, a dead prisoner, and then they chain that dead body on the back of Lois. Yeah, Lois ain't smelling good already because she's in prison, but now she's smelling... I mean, yesterday there was a dead mouse. You know, dead mice are small. This one was about this size, and it stunk up a room so bad, you'd have to... It just smelled like a Portuguese cheese factory. But it was... Yeah, but I mean, imagine if you take that and then make it Lois size, and, you know, or someone bigger. And so what happens is you can imagine the dead body always wins. The living body doesn't bring the other body to life unless something supernatural takes place. What happens is the Staphylococcus bacteria and the other things that God invented to help things actually recycle, so to speak, um, are now making their way into Lois's body. And what happens is, as it creeps in, ultimately the two bodies become one. They open up, and you know, you get, yeah, you know, no more nuns taken for you. The point is, is Okay, no, please understand, that should really gross us out. I should develop it, but I won't. Because that's the way Paul saw our old life of sin. Mm. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what Paul's talking about. He's like, the person I used to be is like a dead body chained on me, and I need it off me. Mm. So that's why he goes, why do I do what I don't want to do? When I do what I don't want to do, that's this guy. Does that make sense? And he goes, who will deliver me? Praise be to Jesus Christ. Because from this point on, Jesus gave me another option, and that is not to walk in the flesh anymore, but to walk in the Spirit. Did he mean now, or like now? Later? Now. Okay. That doesn't, and he goes, by the way, and notice how he ends it. He says, verse, you know, so we're in chapter 7, which I can barely read in this light because my eyes are bad enough. But you notice verse, verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Because my flesh, in other words, what he's telling you is, and I want you to know, your flesh will never convert. And this is why, praise God, he's got a whole new model for us to move into uh, that won't have this problem anymore. Okay, you with me on that? One more question, sorry. Please. The whole idea like, of being perfect in this life. Sorry. This is a guy 24 years into his ministry. They call that glorious sanctification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah. But I think it's a fantastic goal for everyone. Is that fair? You know... Because we we live in a generation that's like, well, if I can't do it, I'm not even going to try. Mm-hmm. And that's just so lame. You'll never know how high you can jump until you shoot for the moon. Mm-hmm. You know? And he's like, yeah. I mean, my brother, who's also pastor, there was a couple that came in once. I, I, I think he loves to tell the story. 
and he says, um, yeah, they, um, we, the, the, guy, the man came in first and said the problem was his wife, and he believed in glorious sanctification. He believed that he had been gloriously sanctified. He'll never sin again. He's like, huh. So he bring the, brought his wife in. He's like, you know, your husband just told me the most astonishing thing. And he said, you know, he just told me that he actually never sins anymore. He says he left them arguing for the moment. But anyway, that gets us to chapter 8. Look at how it starts. There is therefore, therefore, wait a minute, look at the last thing again. I remind you, my mind will serve the law of God, but my flesh still wants to sin, and therefore there's no condemnation. Therefore, because Christ has actually delivered me from the control of that nasty thing. There's no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice it says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Oh, nobody likes to read that last part because it's a condition. And I challenge you to, to take a look at how many times in chapter 8 you'll see the comparison of the flesh and the spirit. Verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law might be filled who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 5. For those who walk according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. To be carnally minded, same word, flesh, sarach is death, but to be spiritually minded is peace, life and peace. Because the carnal mind, fleshly mind, sarf, by the way, is enmity with, against God. It cannot be subject to God. It is not, and it cannot be. Your fleshly mind will never submit to God. So then, those who are in the flesh, you can't please God that way. But you're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. I mean, if you don't have the spirit of God, you don't belong to him. So there are people who are like, well, I got saved on this day. But then I got spirit filled. Like, I'm not talking about. I'm not going to argue spirit filled stuff. But the day you said yes to Jesus, He gave you His spirit. So it tells us that in Ephesians 1:13. By the way, that's fundamental. Now you can still. There's an issue of empowering, and we can talk about that on another day. But first of all, you need to know that from the moment you said yes to Jesus, He said, "You're mine." It isn't like God's like, "Well, let's think about this for a while. Maybe I'll give you my spirit later. You'll have to earn it." No, it's always going to be by grace. Does that make sense? So with that in mind, he'll tell you, by the way, as a result of that, you need to know that spirit he put inside of you, that's the part that changes you. That's the one that changes you from the inside out. And that's the one is the spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. No. God's not into dumping his kids. And therefore, God will move you from glory to glory in this case. And therefore, you need to know, what shall we say then about these things? This is verse 31. God is forceful, then who in the world could be against us? The only person who has a legal right to be against us is the one who didn't spare his only son. And he's the one for us. See, the only one who actually legally has a right to stand against us. We haven't offended the enemy. We've offended the Father. And he's the one who saved us. So exactly, how do you think this is in any way unfair? Well, it is. Grace is unfair. It's just unfair in your favor. So, how does this chapter end? Well, nothing's going to be able to separate you from the love of God. And even list things out in case you want to try to find something else. If you're going to try to pull some kind of weird spiritual calculus on God, he's like, look, it doesn't work. Now listen, nothing can separate you from the love of God, but what if you're running from him? Well, I'm going to say, you're still not separated. The love of God is riding your back like a jockey. But why don't you just turn around and embrace the love of God since you can't run from it anyway? Fair enough? Okay, so, chapters 1 and 2... Sin. Chapters 3 through... And everybody does it. Chapters 3 through 5? Salvation. salvation. And in the issue of salvation, God, God does what? 
God offers grace, and what is and what does He offer by grace? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And what is how does man receive it? By faith. By faith. Right. Beautiful. All right. Universal need, universal cure. Chapter six to eight. It's all about transitioning from walking in sin, yeah, or the flesh, sin, right, to walking in the spirit. That's the whole idea. That's sanctification, by the way. You with me so far? All right. Chapters 9 through 11. God is sovereign and smart. It's actually rather simple. Paul would actually say this. You know, my heart's desire for Israel is that they would be saved. So there's chapter, here's chapter 9. God benched Israel's mission. Well, God benched Israel from the mission and enlisted the Gentiles. That's chapter 9. Just like a good coach would do this. And you know why? Because they have the wrong righteousness. How's that for a fun term? They want to make themselves right through their works. And God says, that does not work. Because that's not grace. That's the opposite of grace. Because it isn't that they lack zeal. What they lack is the right righteousness. So God's like, well, how are you going to make other people right with me when you don't, you're not even right with me yourself? So he benched them. Does that make sense? Okay, chapter 10, in the middle of 9, 10, and 11, we have this statement, one of our favorite statements. Look at verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart that one believes unto righteousness and it is with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. The question is, who could do this? Anyone. And the point is, in the middle of this Thing where people are like, well, God just wants to send some to hell. This is like God benched one people, brought in another people, but anybody that's willing to call on the name of the Lord can be saved. Look, look at the next verse. He quotes from Joel in this. He says, there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. And again, remember, that's the religious or the unreligious. For in the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, you have to realize there's not a human being on the planet that doesn't fit into the whoever category. Is that fair? So I have a real hard time thinking this is all about God just shoveling people into hell. Now understand, chapter 9, God benched Israel and he brought in the Gentiles. Chapter 10, how does anybody qualify to get back out? Call in the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Chapter 11, the real question is, has Israel been kicked off the team? Are they gone for good? Notice that's how he starts it. Chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. I'm also an Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Clearly, God is not sending them to hell. God isn't like, oh, Israel, forget it. Send them all to hell. He goes, because I'm saved and I'm Jewish. So clearly that can't be the case. As a matter of fact, chapter 11 basically fits into this. God will keep his promises and he will ultimately bring Israel back to where they belong. This is why God is, this is how God is sovereign and smart. He knows when to bench. He knows who to bring in. Here's the funny part. In bringing in the Gentile, is God never forgot about Israel. Do you know what happens as he brings in the Gentile? Do you know what it does to the Jew, according to this? Makes him jealous. Do you really think God's bailing on Israel when he's bringing in someone to make him jealous? This is a lover. It's like I'm bringing in somebody else, but I, hey, you could and understand this isn't just, you know, well, 
All right, honey, Suzanne, I don't think you're giving me enough affection. I'm going to go make out with someone else so you get jealous. That's kind of funky. But if you ever played on a team, and if you're anything like me, I actually like playing. I don't like sitting on the bench and going, yay, we won. I want to be out there winning it. And if I'm acting like a jerk, and I've coached, so I know how it makes more sense now that I've coached, because it doesn't always look the same when you're out there. And he puts you on the bench, and you see somebody else doing your job, I get jealous. I'm like, dang, I could be doing that right now. He's like, I'm bringing him out there for that. And the whole point, he goes, in the end of it all, Israel will be saved. And God will restore Israel. Does that make sense? So God is sovereign and smart. He knows when to bench you. And he knows when to put someone else in your place. And you're going, well, does that make you jealous? Well, then, you want to get back out there? Let's do this right. Don't establish your own righteousness. You've got to do it my way. Fair enough? Look at how it, what it leads Paul to at the end of it all. A mental meltdown. This is what he says. Look at the end of this. And then we're in our last section, by the way. And we're, man, we're on it. All right. Verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond finding out. Do you realize what he just said? Oh, my mind is blown. God, the way you do stuff, I have not figured this out. I have to categorize this as, okay, you're smarter than I am. So when people are like, well, I figured out these chapters, I'm like, well, you did better than Paul. Because what Paul did at the end of this is, uh, and drool's coming out of his face. Because he's like, and then notice what he says. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? And who has given to him that he should actually repay him? For, uh, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. And then notice chapter 12, it starts with, Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. You know what Paul got out of chapters 9 through 11? Mercy. He goes, my mind is blown, but I can tell you this much. Wow, you're merciful. Isn't it a great thing to pull out of 9 through 11? But if you've ever watched a coach that knows what he's doing and he benches someone to win, brings them in at the right time, but now he's actually more useful because he's useful for the team and not just for himself, there's a mercy in that. You with me so far? Because we're on our last one. Chapters 1 and 2, what is it? Basic point. Everybody does it. And ultimately, remember, God says, here I am, and they're like, nope, I'll trade that. And God goes, okay. Right? Religious, religious, or religious, doesn't matter. Chapters 3 through 5, our second section. What is it? Salvation. 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 Basic point, God offers what by grace? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And how do we receive it? Sounds pretty awesome. Chapters 6 through 8, that's our third section. What is it? Sanctification. Sanctification. In sanctification, basically we move from walking in the flesh or in sin to walking in the Spirit. Boom. And that's the work of the Spirit. You with me so far? Chapters 9 through 11, God is two things. Sovereign and smart. People go, well, wait a minute. If people have a choice, how could God be sovereign? You know what? God could totally be in control and still give people a choice. I give my kids a choice, but I'm still the master of the house. It's like, if you do something wrong, this is the result of it, and they do something wrong, and it's the result. Guess who's still in charge? Yeah, anyway, so I'm just, I'm not trying to get weird about it, but it's, yeah, anyway. But he's like, look at, and again, the whole point of it is God benched, he brought in, but God will restore. 
Right. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. So, obviously, there's, there's um, like an order to these things. Mm-hmm. But, like, do you ever change between them? Like, I, you, you build upon them. It's like math. Yeah. You will always be on earth a sinner. Mm-hmm. But you're a sinner saved by grace. So you're saved. But as it's the case, God continues to pull you from that life of sin to a life walking in the Spirit. But here's the thing. Okay, let's put it this way. Eddie gave his life to Christ, but then he kind of lived like he did before, and then God really got a hold of him. He's like, all right, now I want to live sanctified. Mm. Right? But he still deals with sin. But as God does it, what happens is God starts to sanctify you from the inside out by the power of the Spirit. As he starts to walk in the power of the Spirit, he starts looking and going, oh man, I want to see people saved. I'm going to see Christians raised up. And you know what happens? So he goes out and he preaches the gospel and he starts sharing. And then weird things happen. He's like, wow, well that person seemed like they were going to be my best bud. We were going to like partner and take on the world, man. And now they're like, we're out doing heroin. Or I mean, it's like crazy the stuff that happens and you go, I don't get it. And you would dump your life into someone and they turn out to be this crazy betrayer. You need to realize God is sovereign and smart. Do you see how important that is in that order there? Because he's like, you need to trust me that even if the result isn't what you're looking for right now, we're on the same team. And we want the same thing. Mm-hmm. The difference is, I want it now. Mm-hmm. But often when it happens now, it happens temporarily. Mm-hmm. But when God does it, it happens permanently. Does that make sense? So that takes us to our last area. The area of service. So here we go. In this five sections, what's the first one? Yeah. Second one? Salvation. Third? <coughs> Sanctification. Then God is? Covenant and smart. And then finally? Service. Genesis. Sin. Exodus. Salvation. Leviticus. Sanctification. Numbers. God is? Sovereign and smart. Ultimately, Deuteronomy? Oh, God's so good. Okay, with me? Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I'm ready to serve now. All right, God, I trust you're sovereign. I want to walk in the Spirit, and because I want to walk in the Spirit, I have your priorities. I want to do it right, man. Let's do it. God goes, okay, cool. What's your first? What's my first act of service, God? What do I do? He goes, you know your first act of service is vertical. And you're like, uh, wait a minute, what? In light of his mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto him. It's your only reasonable act of worship. Or service, the term that's used there. He goes, you want to really serve? Here's how it starts. Give me your body. And you're like, wait a minute. And here's the fundament that most people don't get. You will never be the craftsman. You'll never be the artist. You'll be the tool. And that's why you offer your body to God. Because service means you are in the hands of the greatest servant that ever lived. And the greatest artist. And the greatest craftsman. I think there's a reason why Jesus was a builder. Because he knows how to build things. And he's clearly the greatest artist that ever lived. And whether that be a sunset or just jellyfish. I jones on jellyfish. I don't know what it is about them. I could just stare at them forever and be like, well, it's like Pink Floyd for me. Awesome. But the whole point is, is that God made that. And that thing that's like dwells in the deep we just discovered like 20 years ago, that it's like this little light, doo, 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 and Fisher like calm to the light. And then it's like teeth are like, ah, God, ah. Did you ever see that thing? That thing's like, Stephen King has nothing on God. A cute little light go towards the light. Ah! It's like, God came up with that. Or those jellyfish that look like it's a marquee and the lights go around in the circle. I just, God's like, I've had that waiting for you and you're finally discovered and now you're really smart. 
He goes, you really want to serve me? Give me you. He goes, and by the way, what's it like to hand over my body? Let's start with this. Don't be conformed to the world. Huh. I haven't even gotten out the door yet to serve you. And he goes, first, give me you. And then give me your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's how you're going to be able to approve and understand and know my perfect will for your life. Because you're not going to get it from the world. So give me your mind. He goes, oh, and then give me your heart. I want love to be without hypocrisy. And I want you to realize, give me your time because you're going to have to work as a team. I'm not sending you out as a lobo and you hunt alone. I'm sending you out to be a part of the body, among a body, to serve the body. Because that's all part of this. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. that's the part we miss. We're like, God, I'm going to work for you. God's like, I didn't hire you. I saved you and adopted <laughs> you. Okay, so here's the issue. Chapter 13, and here's how it goes quick. Chapter 13, if you're going to serve, work in the order of leadership, of authority. Submit to government. Now, is there any time you don't submit to government if they demand that you sin? There's a difference between that and they allow sin. Because he was telling them to submit to authority. You really think Rome was extremely moral? Rome was killing Christians when Paul's writing this. He's like, you need to submit to them. And you're like, are you nuts? So I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to submit to our government. Look it. Our government will never be as evil as this one. I'm confident of that. Regardless of who's on the... I mean, I'm talking for a guy that came from America. You should get that. The point of it, he's like, look, if you're going to be, if you're going to serve me, I want you to work as a team, and I want you to work in order under authority. There should be a humility in that. Chapter 14, let me tell you about another thing that could be really kind of a heavy thing. Why don't you, in humility, respect each other's convictions? He says there's basically two groups of people now. Okay, there were the religious and the irreligious before. Let me tell you the two groups of people now. There are those that have a lot of conviction, and there are those that don't have a lot, that, that don't have many. Now, please understand the difference. We're not talking about the law of God. That should be without debate. Convictions are things that, the fences God draws in your life to keep you out of a potential weakness. Now, for me, for instance, I grew up violent, so I tend not to watch really violent films. Now, I can watch things that I think are choreographed well, but I'd go, oh, that's a decent fight scene. But I tend not to watch things that guys are just punching the heck out of each other or like those YouTube videos mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, that guy's actually literally ripping that guy's jaw um, because it doesn't do anything good to me. It's a conviction for me, but I can't lay that on you, if that makes sense. He goes, but there's basically going to be two people that show up at the table, somebody with a lot of convictions and somebody without that many convictions. He goes, but here's the natural tendency. The person with the convictions condemns the other. You see movies? You're going to hell. That kind of thing. But the person on the other side that has more of the freedoms, if you will, tends to look with contempt at the other one. What an idiot. They look with movie. What's wrong with them? And he goes, you do realize, neither one of those functions well as a servant. You don't look like me when you act like that. Now, please understand, and i, I got to just lay this out because it's something that's, it becomes a hot topic in our fellowship. We always talk about people, one of the things that happened, it was probably 30, 25 years ago, when you have these people that were moving in together, and clearly, I remind you, convictions are to help keep people out of sin. And they're like, well, what do we do when this guy's got these convictions? And I know, well, you've got two options. 
I mean, one is you can move out because clearly, but I go, you have to default to the highest common denominator in a household. Like, for instance, if secular music puts somebody in the flesh, because remember, the whole idea is we're trying to walk out of the flesh, and we're trying to walk in the spirit. And putting you in the flesh is entirely different than just making you sin. Some people can't watch football without being in the flesh. No, that's not for me to judge. But if we want to walk in this, we want to walk in the spirit. Then other people they can you know they can watch anything they want. Some people you can't play card games with without them like totally turning and like whoa did you you've always been mild you're like Satan on the table <laughs> you know and you know those kind of people and they're like <laughs> okay it's a difference between banter and somebody that just you know they're like screaming and yeah right. anyways and it's like and the whole reason I say that is is it says anything can be a sin if it leads you to the flesh. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And I go, so in a case like this, it was an issue of secular music. One guy like did not want secular music in his house. He goes, no matter what it is, it just puts me in the flesh. The other guy's like, dude, that's not a big deal. I'm, not, I'm cool with any kind of music, you know? And I'm like, I believe you are. I go, but in that household, you know what happens if you play secular music. It's going to lead him to the flesh. So you have two choices. I mean, one is stop listening to it in the house or move out. I go, but you do that out of love. Out of definition, what does lead you to the flesh mean? Mm. That's a good question. Well, I would say, well, definitely that's the 6 through 8 category where what you find is it says the, the mind that's in enmity with God, the mind focuses on themselves and all they want is them. They become, they become the thing anymore in God. The, the moment that your heart is completely swayed away from God and put on you. How's that? Is that fair? You know. So here's the problem. What do you do at a church? When you know that there are going to be people who have struggles in a lot of these areas, you, you can't do it for the church members, but you can do it for the leadership. And that's the hard part for us. Is we're like, especially when we're dealing with people that are getting saved, and because they're getting saved, they're coming from various places of really rough places. You just want to keep them out of that. Anyways, all of that said, uh, the whole point in this is, and we got a lot of that from this in chapter 14, and the idea of it is, you have no right to condemn a person who has greater freedoms, but you also have no right to look at contempt for a person that has greater convictions. Mm-hmm. By the way, when I married Suzanne, I don't know if you know this, I used to think she hated me. Because mm-hmm. I was the guy who was like, but come on, really? I was the actual guy that looked at and went, that's just dumb. And Suzanne was like, what? How could you call yourself a Christian? <laughs> I was bartending when I met her, to give you an idea. And she's like, how could you do that? I'm like... Make makes money, honey. You know. <laughs> and again, I mean, I've grown away from a lot of that. But the whole point is, is that you know, I realize what it's like to be on that side of it. But I also realized that when I was going to move in with Suzanne, oh, by the way, after we were married, uh, I actually showed her all of my videos and all of my CDs. We used to have those back then, and uh, and just went, hey, if any of these are going to drag you into something, get rid of them right now. You just you pick. Because I didn't want anything. Because let's face it, why would I want my wife in the flesh? That's mm-hmm. the worst wife I could have. Mm-hmm. Right? So, anyways, all that said. Um, so, chapter five, chapter 15, and by the way, you should really work together on this. You know, look at, in the end of it all, what I really love is whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you're high conviction or low conviction, you guys really should join hands because this really is about serving each other and about bringing people to know me. Don't you think? 
chapter 16. Oh, by the way, I really still want to come. I'm planning on going to Spain. We never get in a text. Maybe he did. We don't know. He, Paul was ultimately arrested in, 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 in Jerusalem. He would wind up being in house arrest. That's like being grounded. From, from 60 to 62 AD, he was released by Nero, by the way, uh, who kept bringing him up to hear Paul speak. And I wonder if Paul's like, that's so close. Mm-hmm. No, he's not. And he was released from 62 to 65 AD, and then he was re-caught, and by 67 AD he was killed. So in those years in between, there's probably a billion books written about what they think Paul did. You know, I mean, he went everywhere. Uh, did he go to Spain? Did he ever make it to Spain? Well, you can ask him when you get to heaven, but it's fairly likely when you get to heaven, you'll be like, this is so unimportant. So that's the entire book of Romans. No. We could have developed a whole lot more, but to be honest, I think we developed more than I had planned. So let me ask you and review. Chapters 1 and 2, what's the first section? Basic point. Everybody does it. Includes you. Includes me. Second section, 3 through 5, what is it? Salvation. God offers by grace. And we receive it by? Beautiful. How's that? Chapter 6 through 8 is our third section. What is it? Which just means what? What does it mean? Yeah, walking from the flesh to the spirit or walking from sin to walking in the spirit. In other words, sanctification means being set apart. Okay, so that's our third section. Fourth section, 9 through 11, what is it? Sovereignty and smart. Sovereignty and smart. Yeah, God is sovereign and he's smart. He's in control and he's smarter than you are. And with that, what did God do? He benched Israel, brought in the Gentiles... Ultimately, from that, he's going to bring in the, the, the Jew back in. They're going to be restored, and boy, it's going to be awesome. Right? Okay. Last section. What's our last section? Service. service. Where's the first place? What do you do? It's the first thing you do in service? The body. Offer it to God. Make it vertical. Right? Once you've offered that to God, next thing is work under authority, respect each other's convictions, and work as a team. Boom. How's that? All right. I want to pray. And we dare. How's that? Are there any last questions before we pray? Okay. Well, there might be, but you can ask me later. Alright. Has this been good? Yeah. It's been yeah. good. Praise the Lord. Next week, by the way, first Corinthians. It's even simpler book. It breaks up into two sections. So uh, and I'll even try to get you to remember all of the questions, basic questions asked of Paul. Yeah. Well that'll be part of the challenge. So you have a week to read through that. Right, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for burgers. I want to thank you for this place that they've opened up. I want to thank you, Lord, for the great grace you have shown us. I want to thank you, Lord, for the people downstairs that have been kind to us. I want to thank you for the hot day uh, that just seems like it's put a little skip on our step. But first and foremost, I want to thank you that you look at a sinner and you don't anything but love them. You want them. And God, it doesn't matter how wretched and nasty, in the end of it all, you've offered yourself to man and they turn away. You keep putting boundaries on them until you finally release them into their own destruction, Lord, and that's not what you want. That's your wrath. And it doesn't matter whether we were raised religious or not. We've all been lawbreakers. But you were a God of grace. And because you are a God of grace, you have on the cross paid for all of our sins. And as you paid for all of our sins, and with Jesus raised him from the dead, and in that same way, 
we recognize it is grace. It is a gift from you, and you offer us forgiveness. And in that forgiveness, we by faith receive it. And then you tell us we're no longer to walk in the flesh. We are not to, to continue to live the way we did before because that man was buried and died. We're not to just choose sin because we don't want to submit anymore to that bondage. And the problem isn't the law. The problem is us. We are weak. And therefore, you know that the necessity of your spirit empowering us to walk in your spirit is everything. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to walk in the flesh. We don't want to walk in that anymore. We want to walk in your spirit. And in that, Lord, we recognize you are sovereign and smart. You know when to bench. And you tell us, Lord, that we are not to make these things up as we go along. We are not to establish our own righteousness, but yours. We don't want to have the wrong righteousness. So, Lord, with that, you tell us whoever calls on your name will be saved. So, Lord, I want to thank you for that. And in that, Lord, you know when to bring us back in. So bring us back in, Lord, we pray, with a right mind and a right heart. And with that, in view of your mercy, we want to give you our bodies first, our minds to be transformed, our hearts to be genuine and pure, our lives to be working as a team. And in that, working under the authority that you put before us, but also to respect each other's convictions, And in the diversity, not of sin, but in the diversity just of the different personalities you've made of us and so forth, we're to lock arms and to serve as you call us to. Be glorified in that we pray. And we thank you. Thank you so much for the night. In Jesus' name.